All right, thank you, Lynn. So that's our passage that we're going to be looking at today. And for uh, those of you that know, we've been studying John for quite a while now, and we're going to be diving into it some more. And for those of you that may be new or just coming for the first time, uh, my name's Bobby, and I usually do music, and every once in a while, they, Troy and the team, they venture out and throw me out here to, to teach, and it's, and it's uh, fun and, you know, vulnerable and humiliating and all of that stuff all wrapped up <laughs> into, into one. But it's, it's, it truly is a joy to be able to, to share with you and to look at this text. Um, I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I read scripture, and especially when I read a passage like that, I jump, I jump right away to like the words that are being said in the specific passage that I may be reading. So here in 14, we, right out of the gate, you see, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe, believe also in me. And I can jump straight to application and go, see how generous and loving Jesus is with his disciples, and he's offering to care for them and offer them some, some comfort and uh, what a great picture that is. And he says he's going to prepare a place for them. And, and we can kind of jump right away. But just like in any story, we're jumping midstream here. So when John wrote his whole book, he didn't include chapters. He didn't say, chapter one, in the beginning was the word, and the word was... He didn't say that. And then chapter two, he just wrote. He just started writing. And it wasn't until there were very, very smart people that said, you know what, I sense a shift in tone here, or a shift in emphasis. We should put a chapter marking on this so that it, we can start to delineate itself. And then verse by verse, he didn't do verses when he wrote it either. We start to put these little tag marks on here so that we can have some guideline of how to, how to break this whole thing apart. And all of that is incredibly necessary, an incredibly wonderful tool that we have to be able to read Scripture. But I think sometimes it starts to narrow our focus into what's really going on. See, John is one of the synoptic gospels, meaning eyewitness account. Uh, So just like Matthew and Mark and Luke, they were walking with Jesus. They were watching things unfold right before their eyes. And it wasn't until much later that they said, we got to write this stuff down. And obviously, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to put it on their hearts to pen these things. And so when we read Scripture, we have to just take into into account that there's a few factors going on. There's interpretation, and there's translation. What do I mean by that? Interpretation is that John was a unique human being. I think sometimes when we read Scripture, we read the writings of these people as more than human because of the status that they have in our culture now, where we name cities and churches after uh, these writers. And we almost make them more than human. But the reality is, is that John was a dude. He had emotions, and he had flaws, and he had a filter by which he was experiencing the world. He had a filter that, that doesn't mean that that was bad, it was a filter that was given to him by God. The unique and wonderful creation that he is in Christ is his filter. Just like Matthew and Mark, they also had that filter in which they experienced the world. So based on that filter, they interpret what 
they're seeing unfold before them uniquely. So let me bring it home. Let me bring it here, right here, right now. Uh, I love going to Packer games. Many of, I think many of you do too. It's kind of a big deal around here. Uh, and let's say I was there with a friend. The two of us were, were in the, uh, those aluminum bleacher seats, and we're watching uh, a football game. We're watching the Packers play. Let's say they're playing the Vikings. And, oh, and, and unbeknownst to each other, uh, my friend and I, we decide that we're going to write an entire book based off of one play that we're witnessing we're going to write an entire book based off of one play. And so my loathe for the Vikings, I, I watch them. I'm watching the defense the whole time. And the snap happens, and I see that the linebacker jumped the line, and the ref didn't catch it. There was no flag thrown, which gave the linebacker an, an advantage to put pressure on Aaron Rodgers. And I'm outraged. I'm incensed. I'm saying, you missed it. He jumped the line. It was offsides. And then my friend says, I'm watching offense the entire time. I'm watching Aaron Rodgers. I'm going to see what he does. And he's going to write his entire book based off of that. So when I go to write my book, I say, it was an outrage. The NFL officiating is a travesty. The linebacker clearly jumped the line, jumped the snap, which giving him an advantage to put pressure on the quarterback, which completely changed the entire outcome of that play. Now, my friend that studied the offense he may write something like, it was an amazing feat of athleticism and instinct and decision-making. Aaron Rodgers was under intense pressure from the defense. He scrambled, got out of the pocket, and still was able to make the play happen. Very different account. And not inconsistent. But interpreted differently. And so when we see the writers of Scripture put these things down. We're, we have to understand that, again, with this umbrella of grace and umbrella of understanding that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, that their interpretation is going to be a little bit different. Their emphasis on certain things is going to be different. You have people like Luke, who is a doctor, and he even comes out and tells you right in the beginning of his gospel, I'm going to give you an accurate, detailed account of everything that happened. Whereas you see in the other ones, you don't see kind of that much clarity. Mark is messy. Uh, Matthew, he's writing from the, the, the uh, vantage point of a tax collector. His cultural filter is going to be very different because everybody hated him. So when he talks about grace and forgiveness, it's going to feel different in Matthew's gospel. And so John, John is uh, one of the last writers so he had a lot of time of the, of the Gospels. He had a lot of time to marinate and think about what, it, what is it based on the experiences that I've seen and felt and known that I really need to lean into. So that's kind of our backdrop. That's to, to launch us forward into how we even just approach Scripture in general, but specifically to the... To the uh, this chapter in John. Like any good story, uh, you can't just start in the middle. Uh, you have to kind of see the, all sides of the story here. So we're starting in the middle of the story with 14. 
So when he says, do not let your hearts be troubled, it immediately evokes a question, why are they troubled? It's not just the fact that Jesus was willing and offering to comfort them. What is it that was troubling them? There was something going on. And so although we can very arguably make a case for why... Uh, these fans are strong in here. <laughs> why it was a beautiful picture of his grace and love and care for them. We need to step back. We're just going to go back one chapter into 13, and we're going to try to summarize that to launch us into 14, okay? So if you have a Bible, um, you can open to, to John, and we're going to be jumping from 13 to 14 and a little bit more. If you don't have a Bible, we can have somebody hand one to you. We have some available here. And quite honestly, you don't have to wait for somebody to hand you a Bible. Just go get one. I mean, it's, there's no rule that you have to stay seated until somebody gets you a Bible. It's a big, big living room, so help yourself. Go get yourself, you know, yeah, find, go get a cup of coffee, come back, whatever. Uh, we're, this is casual. Let's just talk. So get a Bible if you need one. So I'm going to do my best to kind of summarize all that's going on in 13 to lead us into 14, okay? So the very beginning of 13, Jesus... It was right before Passover, and Jesus washes his disciples' feet. So right away, and, and I want to make sure that we kind of humanize the experience a little bit. Again, I'm not trying to, like, to thwart the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but I think I just want to keep in mind that these were real people. These were real humans that were experiencing a very real Jesus and very real words that he was saying. And so he, right before Passover, he washes their feet. Any of you that were here uh, a year ago when we did that foot washing experience here in the, in, in the sanctuary here during one of the services, you know that it's awkward. It feels a little uncomfortable and they hadn't been introduced to something like that. So already they're like, ah, what, what, what are you doing? I mean, you can even, if you read the story, you even see Peter's response is like, well, then don't wash my feet, wash my whole body. And Jesus, you, send, you can see, start to see Jesus' sarcasm too, like, do you need a bath? That's, that's not what I'm doing. Let me do what I'm doing. So already they're kind of put off a little bit. And not necessarily put off bad, but put off just like, okay, that was weird. That was, that was awkward. And immediately from there, he goes into predicting and pointing out Judas as his betrayer. And I can't imagine how weird that must have felt being some of the other disciples in, in the room. He just washed their feet, and then he says, one of you is going to betray me. And again, Peter, man, that dude is just a hot mess. He cracks me up. He, uh, Simon Peter, it says in verse 24 and 13, says, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him who he's talking about. <laughs> he was too afraid to actually just come out and say it. He leans over to his buddy like, why don't you ask him who he's talking about? And so Jesus says, it's who I give this piece of bread to, and he gives it to Judas. And this, it even alludes to their confusion as to why. Like, well, maybe because he was the keeper of money, and he's going to do something 
with the money that's wrong? But anyway, he gives Judas his bread, points him out as his betrayer. It says that Satan entered Judas and he bolted. Adding to the weirdness. Like, Jesus just washed our feet, said Judas is going to betray him. Judas up and leaves. Like, what? What is going on? I thought we were going to do Passover. We always do this every year. This is weird. And so you can see them kind of starting to scramble, even in their like questions to him. Like, uh, okay, what's, what's going on here? So right away, so again, this is all within the context of minutes. You know, we're now bolting through an entire chapter, but this is one event right after another. This happened, this happened, and then now Jesus predicts Peter's denial. And the, the interesting part about him protecting, uh, predicting G- Peter's denial is that he starts to tell them a little bit of foreshadowing of what's about to happen. He says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and, uh, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give to you, love one another. And then in 36, Simon Peter, again Peter, he's, he said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Now, why is that really significant? Again, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, of what their experience up till now has been. Many of them responded to Jesus' call to follow him. And they quit their jobs. They dropped what they were doing. They severed relationships. They had to pack up and move from wherever they were living. And they dropped everything to follow him. So they've been following him all along, and then Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me anymore. What? What do you mean I can't follow you? That's what we've been doing. That's what this is all about. I gave up everything to follow you, and now you're saying that I can't follow you, but I will later? What does that mean? That's weird. And so Peter says, well... No, Jesus, I'm not okay with that. Why can't I follow you? I will do anything for you. I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, Will you really? Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now I can imagine, again, adding to the awkwardness of the room. So he just washed their feet, just pointed out Jesus as betrayer, and Judas up and left. Just told them that he's not, you're, we're not going to be able to follow him anymore, and that, maybe, that we will later. Peter says, well, no, I'm going to follow you. I'll, I'd die for you. And he says, no, you won't. You're actually going to deny me. If I was one of the other disciples, I'd be like, I am not saying anything. Because right. <laughs> it just keeps getting weirder. So weird, so awkward. There's probably so much tension in that room, and they were probably just reeling in their own hearts and mind of like, 
Their expectations are completely being disappointed. Jesus is saying stuff that to them is not making much sense right now. It's just sending them into this tailspin of like, this is not how it was supposed to go. Interesting little side note just about Peter. Uh, I read one commentary that was talking about this passage specifically because it is kind of interesting to think, like, why, why would Peter's offer of, I'd, I'd die for you, Jesus, almost be rejected by Jesus? Say, no, you won't. You're going to deny me, actually. This one commentator says that it was actually an embrace of love for where Peter was at in that moment. Because Peter was relying on his own will. He was relying on his own strength and willpower. It was almost like, a, oh yeah, Jesus, I'll show you. I'll die for you. I'll do anything. And Jesus is basically saying, in your own strength, no, you won't. In my strength, yeah. In fact, in my strength, you will die for me. But when you're relying on your own will, you're going to buckle. And so it was actually more of a, a tender response to him. He could have blown him out of the water. And I guess in some ways he did say, you're going to turn your back on me. But he, Jesus, knowing Peter, knowing his heart, knowing where he was at, was willing to still engage with him in the midst of Peter's pride of trying to act on his own strength. So all this stuff has just unfolded. And we get to 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's as if Jesus is basically kind of taking a step back and saying, guys, I know this is weird. I know this is awkward. I know this is really uncomfortable. But you have believed in God, and so believe me. Trust in the things that I've been telling you all along. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Basically saying, guys, I'm not lying to you. I'm not toying with your emotions. I'm not dangling a carrot in front of you. Trust me. Hear me out. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And here's where we kind of start to get into the theme of much of John. Thomas' response to him was, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And here's some insight into Thomas, too. Thomas is notorious for after the resurrection, and I'm not going to believe. You know how this whole theme that Troy has been talking about of, of believing is seeing? Thomas is saying, like, I'm not going to believe until I see. I need to touch, feel, and know this really is you. And so, I, and that's what he's known for. But here we get to see a little insight into his personality. And that's more of a consistent theme for Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Come on! And, it's, and, and I, I over-dramatize it like that because I, I think we, again, we dehumanize Scripture. And, and we think that the disciples and Jesus talked the way they do on some of the, like, movies that have been produced where they all talk with English accents and very serene, you know. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know? And it's like, I bet he was off his rocker 
And you get to sense some of his doubt and being like, what? No, that's not a good enough answer. How could we possibly know where you're going if you're not going to tell us? Throw us a bone, Jesus. Come on. And so again, you get to see some of the, the character of Thomas, even before the, 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 the resurrection story. And little uh, note about the resurrection, it was interesting. Um, I mean, we have some interns working with us, and I asked Lauren to do a little devotional for one of our team meetings, and she brought this book from Thomas Keller that talked about doubting Thomas and how so many times we see that as such a negative thing that he doubted and he didn't believe until he touched. And Jesus even said, blessed are those that aren't going to see. But the fact that the response of Jesus when he says, let me touch your side, in the midst of Thomas's doubt, he was rewarded with intimacy. He was drawn closer to Jesus in a very vulnerable and intimate way to touch him, to touch his wounds. That's a much different picture of doubt than way I think a lot of us approach it, where we feel like we have to like, cancel it out or rise above our doubt. But the fact that Thomas was rewarded with that intimacy in the midst of his doubt is pretty remarkable. But that's for another, another day. So Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, there's a declarative statement right there. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Here's another uh, little snippet of scripture that I think gets used sometimes even inappropriately. We hear, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and we see that as a stake-in-the-ground stamp in regards to evangelism, that you better know that Jesus is the only way, and I'm not saying that that's not true, that is absolutely true, but in the context of Scripture, what he's saying and why he's saying it and who he's saying it to was not about evangelism. It was about the hope and promise that he had given to them that the Father is in him and that he is in the Father. And if you believe in me, the Father is in you. So don't let your hearts be troubled. It was a much different motive as to why he said that to his disciples. It was one to to continue to push forward this theme of The Father is in me, and I am in the Father, and the Father is in you if you are in me. And they were scratching their heads going like, huh? And so from now on, I mean literally from from the next few chapters, Jesus says the exact same things just using slightly different language. I am in the Father, the Father is in me, and the Father is in you if you are in me. And he just says that in several different ways. He's consistent with his response to the disciples. So Philip's response to this, and again, this is why this is so, this is a a very interesting character study into the disciples. And you kind of get to see what Jesus was dealing with. (laughs) So he just said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. From now on, you know the Father because you know me. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. 
He's like the counter opposite of Peter. Peter trying to say, like, I got this. I'll show you. I'll prove it to you. And Philip is kind of saying, like, just tell me what to do and we'll be fine. As long as you show it, then, then it's not as risky for me. And, and it's very kind of like ambiguous, avoiding. I'm a little scared to step into the stuff you're talking about, Jesus. So just, just make it easier for me to know you and love you and understand what you're saying right now because I'm freaked out. And again, Jesus' Jesus's response is consistent. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Here we go again. Let me tell it to you again. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? And the words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but rather it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. So believe me when I say that I'm in the Father. So you can start to see like Jesus starting to say like, okay, let's do this again. The Father's in me and I'm in the Father. The Father's in you if you're in me. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son and you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. There's another scripture that gets pulled out of the context of this story and applied to a kind of more of a kind of a, a selfish assumption that as long as I believe in God, he's going to give me whatever I want. He said so. He promised it. So now I can hold him responsible for why I don't have any money. Because I asked him for a million dollars, and I got nothing. He must not be trustworthy. It's important to look at the verse right before that. Whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. Because... The Father is in me, and I am in the Father, and the Father is in you if you believe in me. So basically saying, like, when we are all united, like this picture that I'm trying to spell out to you a dozen different ways, you are going to be asking for things that are in line with the same things that I would ask of the Father. We will be united in our requests for him. We will be united in the things that we uh, desire of him. And he goes on later in the chapter to say the things... I don't give to you the way the world does. I give to you differently. I give to you based on what the Father has given me, and we'll get there in a minute. So that's just kind of a pause again because I wanted to point that out because we, we tend to use and abuse that scripture quite a bit. And so that's where, so right here is where technically I'm supposed to end because the way the breakdown of the reading plan was right there. But we can't do that. We can't just stop right there. So, again, going, going backwards and just looking at this, this incredibly awkward and tense series of experiences have just happened. And then he introduces this theme of him being in the Father and the Father being in him and that they are in the Father if they are in him. And they're not getting it, so there's lots of confusion, there's lots of awkwardness, there's lots of doubt. And Jesus is just hanging with them. He's just there and he's like, 
And, it, and regardless of, of the, the motive of the disciple in terms of how they respond to him. So whether it's Peter saying, like, I'll show you. No, you won't. You need to know me because I am in the Father, and the Father's in me, and the Father's in you if you're in me. Or if it's Thomas saying, like, no, I don't think so. I, this doesn't work. Yes, it does, Thomas, because the Father's in me, and I'm in the Father, and the Father's in you if you're in me. Or it's Philip saying, just tell me what to do, because I, I, I don't, I don't want to risk anything. Philip, don't you know me? You know me, and you know the Father, because the Father's in me, and I'm in the Father, and the Father's in you if you know me. So you can see this, like, again, this patience and grace that Jesus is offering to his thick-headed disciples. And it's easy for us to call them thick-headed because we know the story. We know where this is going. We know that Jesus is about to die. And everything that Jesus is doing in the midst of all of this right now is trying to prepare them for the bomb that he's about to drop on them. He's, he's gently saying, I'm going to be going away. But don't worry. And then he says a little stronger, I'm going to be going away and you can't come with me, at least not yet. And then as the chapter continues to unfold, he increases the intensity of what he's talking about because he knows and loves his disciples well enough and is willing to contend with their own uh, interpretations of what's happening right now so that they may get it. So in 14, now we, gotta, we have to keep on moving, and there's some more awkwardness that continues to happen because in 14, chapter, or verse 15, he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you, uh, it's actually in verse 20, uh, 21, whatever, you can read it, <laughs> where he says, I'm going to send you an advocate, and he will be with you, and he will teach you all things. What? You're going to send us an advocate that's been sent by the Father, and he's going to teach it. So what does this guy look like? Or how will we know that that's the advocate that you're talking about? I think because we have this Trinitarian understanding, we just go, yeah. Right, the Holy Spirit. And they were probably going, I'm sorry, what? There's going to, you're sending another guy to, be, I thought, I thought you were, I thought you were the guy. So there's going to be another guy? It's very confusing for them. And I think we don't realize that sometimes, that this was, they were so thrown off of their rocker. And so in uh, verse 21, Jesus continues to this theme, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Again, slightly different language, same theme. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the whole world? So Judas is kind of our philosopher. He's kind of the guy that says like, hey, let's, why not make this like a big deal? There's, you know, there's so much going on in the world that can really benefit from the stuff that you're saying, Jesus. So let's go big with this thing. He's kind of our like philosopher, marketer, businessman guy where he's like, hey, you're onto something. People need to see this and hear this and know this. And uh, Jesus' response 
is almost identical to the previous verses before that. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Again, same message. It almost sounds like he's trying to avoid the question that, that Judas was asking him. It's kind of like, okay, one more time. The Father's in me. And, <laughs> and you can see how, on a human level, that would be so frustrating. If I'm trying to tell uh, a story and, and I'm not trying to like drop the bomb of what I know is about to happen, I'm like, okay, just hang with me. Hear the words that are coming out of my, house. Look, out of my mouth. Look to me. Trust me. Believe in me. Don't let all that other stuff, don't worry about the world right now. Just look to me. And here's what he promises the Holy Spirit. All of this I have spoken to you, but the advocate, but I have spoken to you all, I'm still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. So that Dropping back to that, if you ask for anything in my name, I'll give it to you. But I don't give to you the way the world does. I'm not going to give you a million dollars. I'm not going to get you out of that dead-end job. That's not what I'm talking about. That's stuff for here. I will help you with those things. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to help teach you through that. But the things that I give to you, I don't give to you as the world does. This peace is what I leave with you. This peace is what I give to you. And then here he bookends this whole conversation. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Just look to me. Look to me. I'm the one. Don't look to all these other things. And if you continue on reading through 15 and on to 16, you see that John 15 right away is the story of the vine and the branches. I am the vine and my father is the gardener. And so even that picture of like, me and the father, we're one. And you are one with us when you look to me. So keep looking to me. And then he starts to... I told you he was going to keep on increasing the intensity. He says, I'm not going to be with you very long. And where are you going? So you need to love one another. You need to rely on the teaching of the Holy Spirit that I'm going to give you. You need to rely on the, the words that are coming out of my mouth that you are not alone, that you are with the Father if you keep your eyes on me because it is about to get real. It is about to get really bad for me and it's about to get really bad for you. Because Jesus was about to die and be crucified, which totally blew away their assumptions of him being this ruler that was going to start kicking tail and taking names. And after the resurrection, as they were now sent out with his authority, all but John were martyred. So as he's saying... It's about to get bad for me, and it's about to get really bad for you. So you need to be looking to me. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that the Father is in you if you are in me, because I am in the Father. So he just keeps hammering this into them. 
he's willing to contend with some of their own assumptions, with contend with some of their own interpretations of what's happening, and keeps hammering the truth and the hope that is in him because it is going to get bad. And in 16, and this is, I know I'm already out of time, but he continues on because in 16 he then says, when you do that and it gets bad for you, your grief will turn to joy because you are in me and I am in the Father and the Father is in you. And if you fast forward all the way to the end of chapter 16, and again, I'm speaking, speaking, there's a lot that I'm missing in here, but you can read it for yourself and you can even take a mental note of the amount of times, the amount of ways that Jesus tries to say the same thing to his disciples. It's almost humorous. And in t- at the end of 16, in verse 25, he says, though I have been speaking figuratively, A time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father, and in that day you will ask in my name, and I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then, and there's this big like, aha in the room, because then it says, then Jesus' disciples said, Oh, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. You can almost see Jesus go, oh. (laughs) Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered. Here's the, it's about to get bad for you. You're hearing what I'm saying about me. But here's, what's gonna, here's the other bomb. It's about to get bad for you. You'll be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in my peace, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but in me you will have peace. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. So what do, what do we do with all of this now? How do we now, now that we've tried to put ourselves in the place and in the shoes of the disciples and maybe experience them, these things for the, the emotional weight and gravity that they are, how do we then respond in the same way? And I think we need to do a little character study. So as we uh, get ready to respond and take communion, and, and Meg and the band, they're going to be uh, coming out as well, I want you to identify with some of these characters, and I use characters in every sense of the word. Many of you are like Peter that are trying to just muster up the willpower just to power through this spiritual life with Jesus. I will prove it to you, Jesus, that I'm on your team. Some of you might be like Thomas, saying like, I don't know, it's not enough for me, I need more. That doesn't cut it, so you're going to have to show me a little bit more than that. Some of you might be like Philip, saying, 
just tell me what to do because I am too scared to step into this thing that you're calling me to. And I don't want to have to take responsibility for that risk, so just, just show it to me and then I'll feel better. And maybe some of you are even like Judas. That you're missing the personal invitation and saying like, hey, we could really go big with this Christian stuff. And you're, and you're missing the, uh, several weeks ago we talked about the Pharisees missing the miracle. How many of you are missing the invitation because you're so caught up in the, the effects or so caught up in the potential and you're missing that intimate invitation that you have right now. And so as you go to the table, go to the table with your pride and your self-assurance and say, God, meet me in it. Go to the table with the full extent of your doubt and much like Thomas, feel the invitation into a more intimate place. Go to the table with your ambiguity and your fear of taking a risk in this relationship. And go to the table uh, with your sense of all the other factors around the relationship and not actually entering into the relationship like Judas did. And hear the voice of God, hear the voice of Jesus say, I love you enough to contend with your will. I love you enough to contend with your idolatry. I love you enough to contend with your ambiguity. I love you enough to contend with your doubt. So much so that I'm going to repeat myself in what I'm offering to you. If you trust and look to me, you will see the Father. That is my promise to you. So come to me with all that other stuff. Come to me with it. And I will give you peace that this world can't offer because I am in the Father, the Father is in me, and the Father is in you if you are in me. So let's pray. God, it is, it is so hard to even ascribe words to describe how well you listen to our hearts, how patient you are with the things that distract us, how consistent and faithful you are with your promise of hope. And so God, hear our prayers and meet us where we're at in the midst of doubt and pride and uh, ambiguity Whatever it might be, God, we ask you to, to meet us there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.